Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. This is episode two of season eight, Unresolved, The Murder of Joel Loveling. If you've not listened to episode one yet, you should definitely start there. Got into a fight and somebody died as a result of it. My first thought is, oh my God, there's blood all over. Both sides had their theories about what happened. And my, my first thoughts, it was just so unfair. The state felt it was very important to keep coming back to what the evidence showed. Uh, he had the victim's blood on his clothes, on his face. Most of the people, I think, went out one door and got on the bus. The following is from a police report submitted by Sergeant Mike Ferguson of the Grand Forks Police Department. On October 27, 2007, at 11.52 p.m., the Grand Forks Public Safety Answering Points received a 911 telephone call from employees of the Broken Drum, located at 1503 North Washington Street, who indicated that there was a fight in the parking lot and there was one male subject down on the ground. Officers Strauss and Middleton were dispatched to the call. I was in the downtown area and began to respond as well. At about 11.55 p.m., we received another call from employees of the Broken Drum, indicating that they did not think that the male subject was breathing. We were then informed that CPR was in progress. Officer Middleton was the first officer on scene, and Officer Strauss was second. I arrived as the third officer on scene at about 11.57. Upon my arrival, I noticed a large group of people in the outside parking lot of the bar, located to the north of the building. I noticed Officer Middleton kneeling by a male subject lying on the ground, and I could see that he was performing chest compressions. I ran over to assist and I immediately noticed that the male subject on the ground had severe head injuries. His head was totally covered in blood, making it very difficult to see facial features. The male subject was of a larger build and was wearing a green UND sports jersey. He was laying flat on his back with his head pointing or nearest North Washington Street. The male subject was unresponsive as Officer Middleton continued chest compressions. I attempted to check for a pulse, but could not feel one. Officer Strauss was standing next to us, and I asked if either officer had a mask so I could be giving rescue breaths. Officer Middleton said he had a mask by his leg. At this point, I took over chest compressions, and Officer Middleton attempted to give breaths when appropriate. He had a problem getting a good airway, and I had Officer Strauss attempt to reposition the subject's head and open the airway better. I again checked for a pulse, but could not find one. We continued with CPR, and at this point, a male bystander came up to offer assistance. I told him that was not needed, but if he had witnessed anything, he should wait for officers to speak with him. I notified PSAP that we would need more officers as the group of witnesses was large and the injury to the subject looked very serious. 
I could hear a female crying close to us, and at one point observed two or three females standing by the front of the cars we were next to. One of the females was crying loudly. The ambulance crew and fire department arrived on scene and began to assist us. Officer Middleton and I continued to perform CPR. Ambulance personnel installed an airway tube and now a respirator bag was used to deliver air to the subject. Kim from the ambulance then decided that the subject needed immediate transport from the scene and a backboard was brought over and the subject was rolled onto this left side. Kim checked the back of the subject for injuries and a laceration was observed on the rear of the subject's head. It was hard for me to see how long or deep it was as there was too much blood. The subject was then rolled back onto the backboard and loaded into the ambulance. Officer Middleton got into the ambulance as well. I had Officer Travis Benson then go and tell Officer Middleton that he should stay with the subject in case there was an utterance or dying declaration provided. At this point, the ambulance departed the scene. By now, other officers had arrived on scene and our task turned now from life safety to securing the crime scene and locating witnesses and or the persons involved in this incident. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. When a crime goes unsolved or cold, criticism will often arise about how the first few minutes or hours were handled by investigators. We've heard on True Crime TV how important the first 24 or 48 hours are, and depending on the type of crime, there may be evidence to be preserved or witnesses to locate, roads to be closed, and so on. Sometimes the criticisms seem almost contradictory. If things move too methodically and slowly, we're frustrated And maybe we feel the bad guys are going to get away. Come on, you cops, move quicker. If things move too quickly, and especially when not in the direction we think they should or should have, well then we say there was a rush to judgment or investigators got tunnel vision and focused on the wrong person. The reason I'm bringing this up to you now is in this episode, I want to walk you through the first two or three hours of this investigation to help us all understand something. How the sense of a ticking clock and the very rapid progression of this investigation, combined with other factors, all contributed to a situation where, within a couple of hours, police already had three strong persons of interest. And none of these three were Travis Stay, the man in a yellow costume who would ultimately be put on trial. To make things a little easier to follow, I'll begin by referring to these three persons by their Halloween costumes. These three were a clown a cowboy, and a hunter. 
And there were others that came across the police radar that night too, including a gangster, a bum, a joker, a penguin, to name just a few. But it was these other three that they focused on first. A clown, a cowboy, a hunter. I feel it's very important to shed insight into those first few hectic hours of the investigation, including the full context of what police were told by witnesses. You might say some honest mistakes were made by both witnesses and police. I say honest mistakes not to protect anyone, but because I believe these were just, well, not even mistakes, really, just very confusing events made even more confusing by the need to move quickly, not to mention that many witnesses were incredibly intoxicated. This is important for us to understand because speculation of guilt or involvement towards the cowboy, the clown, the hunter, and others has never really dissipated. In fact, when I was in Grand Forks recently for this story, the first random person I spoke with told me, oh, you're working on that story? Everybody here knows the cowboy did it, maybe the clown. We should ask ourselves, what is this lingering suspicion based on? I believe it's based on two things. Number one, the outcome of the Travis Stay trial. Travis Stay was found not guilty, and his defense attorneys raised considerable suspicion about the behavior of the cowboy and others. Number two, the Dateline NBC production about Joel's death. Dateline spent time and focus and drama highlighting the different ways that the clown, the cowboy, and others acted suspiciously. And that does make for good tension and suspense. But they did not do as good a job as offering all the evidence or even common sense that indicates their non-involvement or innocence. Is Dateline entertaining? Of course it is, that's why we watch it. It's also a one-episode production about a very complicated story, a production intended to be as interesting and suspenseful and entertaining as possible. Between the trial of Travis Stay and the Dateline production, I believe this lingering suspicion towards the cowboy and others is largely rooted in incomplete information, fragments of the story. But the cowboy and the clown, the hunter, and others are real people. Travis Stay had his day in court, 14 days actually, He had a resolution to what must have felt like a nightmare to him. But these other individuals who have never been charged for this crime or even arrested for it were somehow judged anyway by the community around them. And obviously, they're still being judged to this day. And that's why we're going to take a methodical look at the first few hours of this investigation to give you the full picture of how and why the initial investigation focused so sharply on the clown, the cowboy, and the hunter. It might not be quite as suspenseful or dramatic as Dateline's production, but it will be more detailed, factual, and I think more honest. I feel good about that, and I hope you do too. Let's go back to the broken drum bar. The victim, Joel Loveling, has been rushed away in the ambulance. Now it's time for law enforcement to get to work on figuring out what happened. What would you do? Would you seal off the crime scene? Well, that's exactly what happened. The following is what Sergeant Mike Ferguson documented in his report. Due to the time of night and Halloween season, the bar was full of patrons and many were wearing costumes. I could see it would be a task to identify all the potential witnesses due to the large number of patrons. At this point, we did not have much information, and we were not sure of all who may have been involved. 
Due to this fact and the seriousness of the injury and crime involved, it was decided we would freeze the scene via investigative detention and inform the bar patrons that no one was free to leave and no one knew would be admitted to the area until all subjects were identified and briefly asked their involvement. The patrons were very compliant and Officer Johnson 636 stood at the front door to control access. The department intern, Mark Johnson, who was writing that night, was assigned to the rear door of the bar and told no one was to enter or leave without our approval. Officers then began to gather names, addresses, and phone numbers of all patrons in the bar. Any patron who had information that could assist us was escorted to a separate area of the bar. All others who had been identified but who had no information, were released. I informed Officer Benson to have at least one officer work the crowd quickly, gather as much information as possible, so that we could get word out to the other officers on patrol. So the scene is frozen, and there are multiple officers interviewing the many bar patrons and potential witnesses. In fact, there are 63 bar patrons present, as well as six staff members of the Broken Drum. Again, from Ferguson's report. I then returned to the parking lot and ensured the scene was secure and Officer Nichols was posted there to make sure it stayed that way until investigators arrived. The outside parking lot was not well lit. There were two outside lights mounted to the north side of the bar, but that was the only lighting. In looking at the scene itself, I could see a dark-colored baseball cap lying on the ground, some gambling chips, a large pool of blood about two feet in diameter, and a yellow and black cloth that looked like a three-toed foot from some kind of Halloween costume. The parking lot was full of cars, and several patrons asked about getting their cars out of the crime scene. But we decided not to allow that, and the patrons then found alternate transportation from the bar. And then this happens. Sergeant Ferguson gets a call from Officer Middleton, who rode in the ambulance to the hospital. Joel Loveling has been pronounced deceased. It's officially a homicide now, and at this point, all we know is that some kind of attack or assault or fight took place in the parking lot, and one man is dead. Luckily, investigators immediately get a great lead. Officer Johnson has just learned something from a bar patron, a man named Swanson. This guy Swanson explains that as he and his wife were pulling into the parking lot, they witnessed the fight. Swanson says it looked like more than one person involved in the fight jumped on a yellow party bus, and the bus slept. Patrol is informed immediately to keep an eye out for yellow school buses around town. And then a new tip comes in. The bouncer at the Broken Drum, a guy named Chris, he tells the team that before Joel was discovered in the parking lot, a bar patron dressed up as a cowboy came in the front door and told him that there'd been a fight outside and the bus was going to leave. He was wearing a very big belt buckle, jeans, and a cowboy hat. More information comes in. Things are moving quickly. This too from Officer Johnson's work. He's spoken with a young woman named Jennifer Holter. Jennifer has information about the bus. This is how Officer Johnson described his interaction with Jennifer Holter. Jennifer Holter approached me. She stated that she had arrived on this party bus that the three suspects possibly left in. She stated that her sister was presently on it. I asked her if she knew any names of the people on the bus. She stated she only knew three names, John Dezeal, Heather Holter, and Bryce Larson. She told me at that time that Bryce Larson had been the one who organized the bus, and she believed that the bus was headed to Stormy Sledsters, which is a bar located in downtown Grand Forks. Several units headed to the downtown area to try to locate the subjects, or the bus. 
I then asked Jennifer to stand by and not to leave the bar as we'd need further statements from her. Suddenly, new leads. This time, officers Benson and Shower have hot new information. They've spoken with two patrons, Michael Palma and Patricia Luigi. Palma and Luigi say they witnessed an argument between the victim, the man in the green hockey jersey, and a man dressed as a clown and a woman dressed as a wench or barmaid. These two witnesses say that the man in the green jersey, the clown, and the woman all left together out the back door just prior to the victim being found beaten. Sergeant Ferguson adds a male clown and a female wench or barmaid to the list and gets word out to patrol. Keep an eye out for a clown, maybe on a yellow bus, maybe with a cowboy. And now suddenly this, too. Remember Jennifer Holter, the girl who said she'd been on the bus? She approaches Officer Benson. She says she just spoke with her sister, Heather, on her cell phone. Heather and the others from the bus are now downtown somewhere, and word is getting around town that a man died at the broken drum after a fight. Jennifer Holter tells Officer Benson that her sister, Heather, told her on the phone that she knows who killed the victim, but she didn't say who. And so Sergeant Ferguson speaks with Jennifer. The following is from his report. At this point, I went and took Jennifer Holter into a back room of the bar to speak with her about what she may know. Jennifer Holter told me she had received a phone call from her sister, who had just left the bar when the incident took place and had boarded the bus with her boyfriend for Stormy Sledster's bar. Jennifer Holter said her sister told her over the phone she knew who had been involved in the fight, and Jennifer got the impression it was her sister's boyfriend, John DeZeal. And John DeZeal's Halloween costume? He was dressed up as a clown. I asked Jennifer if it would be like John DeZeal to get involved in something like this, and she said yes, because he is very confrontational. Jennifer did not know where either Heather or John were at this time, but they lived in Oslo, Minnesota. Jennifer then told me that the person who had coordinated this bus event was Bryce Larson, and she gave me a phone number. Jennifer told me Bryce was wearing a cowboy outfit that night with a big hat and a big belt buckle. I then went and tried to call Larson to see if we could locate the group he was with, and hopefully John DeZeal and Heather Holter. A male subject identified as Bryce Larson answered the phone when I called. I told Bryce who I was and why I was calling. Bryce sounded intoxicated. Bryce became very angry when told about the incident, and he was very uncooperative. When he heard about the seriousness of the injury, he said, no way. He then became very angry, saying stuff like all he wanted to do was have fun and people had to go and ruin it. Bryce would not tell me where he was or any other people in the bus group. I explained the seriousness of the investigation and how he was hindering that, but he said no way would he talk with me or tell me where he or any other person in the group were. Bryce then began yelling and talking in a rambling manner and started to yell so loudly I had to terminate the call. Bryce did mention he was downtown in the street somewhere and not inside a bar while he's speaking with me. Okay, let's recap quickly. What's the status? Joel Loveling has died. At the scene on the ground, a dark cap, gambling chips, some kind of yellow cloth from a Halloween costume. Witnesses saw the fight taking place in the parking lot and people leaving on a yellow bus. The organizer of that bus is Bryce Larson, dressed as a cowboy. Cowboy Larson knows something about this attack because he told the broken drum bouncer that there'd been a fight and that the bus was going to leave. 
Cowboy Larson would not cooperate at all on the phone. He sounded very intoxicated, wouldn't tell you exactly where he was or the names of anyone. And then there's this clown, John DeZeal. He's the boyfriend of Heather Holter, Jennifer Holter's sister. Jennifer is still in the bar, but Heather left with John the Clown and others on the bus. Two witnesses have stated they saw a guy in a green jersey in an argument near the bathrooms with the clown and another girl. The three of them argued and then walked out the back door together. Jennifer Holter says her sister Heather called her and said she knows who did it, and Jennifer has told the PD she believes her sister was indicating it was Heather's boyfriend, John DeZeal, the clown. As you speak, patrol is downtown looking for yellow buses and cowboys and clowns. Meanwhile, some 800 miles to the west in Bozeman, Montana, Joel Loveling's sister, Erica, and her husband had been hosting a Halloween party of their own that night. They had about 30 people there. We were all dressed up. A lot of friends had come over earlier to get ready together, and we were just having a ball. Halloween was always real fun. So here I was hosting this party, having a grand old time, and the phone rang. Erica's husband answered the phone. It was Judy and Terry, Erica's mother and stepdad. They wanted to talk to her, so he handed the phone over to Erica. And they were calling to let me know that Joel had been killed in Grand Forks. They didn't know any details at that time, but they were leaving for Grand Forks tomorrow. So I lost it. I took the phone, I went into the bedroom, I slammed the door, and my poor husband had to disband the party and kind of explain something's happened, we don't know what, we're sorry, but everybody, we need to clear out. This, there's something terrible that's happened. But I, I didn't know Joel to be a, an alcoholic or a heavy drinker or a fighter, so I just, I could not wrap my head around what happened. I just thought, there had to have been some terrible accident. And my, my first thoughts, it was just so unfair. <laughs> I don't know why. It was, I felt it was unfair because everything was going so right in Joel's life at that time. Just great relationship with his daughter, a job he loved, and Heather had come into his life and he had just become engaged the month prior. And my stepdad, Terry, took their engagement photos right alongside the Red River there in Grand Forks. And that was the month before he died. And they were making wedding plans, and my stepdad was going to cook brisket. And they were just full-on planning the, the, the next phase of their lives together. And it was an exciting, wonderful time. And I thought, what timing? How unfair is this? Just dangle everything in front of them and then rip it away. And I even felt it could have, it should have been me, not him. Maybe that's the big sister talking, I don't know.
Welcome back to Unresolved, the murder of Joel Loveling. The following is based on a statement made later that early morning by a bus driver. I should note that this bus driver is not the driver who drove our yellow bus to the Broken Drum Bar. This man drove a different yellow party bus that night. It's 1 a.m. in downtown Grand Forks, and a bus driver named Keith, employed by the Dietrich Bus Company, is wrapping up his shift, walking through his now empty yellow school bus. He's checking to see if any passengers left anything behind. Earlier, a cop had found him and asked him if he'd been at the Broken Drum Bar that night. He hadn't. Apparently a terrible beating took place over there. Keith notices a figure approaching outside. The next thing he knows, this person is sitting in a seat on the bus up at the front. It's a young man dressed up as a hunter. He's wearing camouflage, an orange vest, a hunter's hat. The hunter speaks. He says, where are we headed to next? I think we're done for the night, Keith tells him. The hunter speaks again. He says, we were at Buck's Bar earlier, right? Keith realizes then that this was not one of his own passengers. No, I think you got the wrong bus. Well, the hunter says, do you think you could take me home? I can give you 20 bucks. He opens his wallet but comes up short. Well, I can write you a check when we get to my place. Keith agrees and off they go across the bridge, headed into East Grand Forks, Minnesota. As they approach the man's home, the hunter speaks again. This time, he says something like this. You know, I don't know if maybe my friends are just messing with me, but I got in a fight earlier, and my buddy says I might have killed the guy, and the police might be looking for me. Keith is suddenly uncomfortable, but he manages to say something like, Well, what do you mean? The hunter tells Keith a little story. He tells them that earlier in the evening, he was walking out of a bar with a girl on his arm when some guy just walked up out of nowhere and took a swing at him. The man missed and the hunter hit him back. Now his buddies say he might want to go home and lay low because word's getting around that the guy died and the cops might be looking for him. Keith parks the big yellow bus outside of the hunter's home and he waits while the young man runs indoors to fetch his checkbook. The hunter returns, writes out the check, and hands it to Keith. Before leaving, he says, If anyone asks you, I didn't do nothing wrong, man. I didn't do nothing wrong. Keith watched the hunter return to his home before looking down at the check in his hand. In the corner was the name James Wavra. A few minutes later, Keith called 911 and then made his way to the Grand Forks Police Department to make his statement. And with him, he brought along that $20 check with the name James Wavra printed in the corner. Elsewhere in Grand Forks, police officer Strauss is giving Jennifer Holter a ride from the broken drum to borrowed bucks where her car is located. Along the way, Jennifer gets a call from her sister. Jennifer hands the phone to Officer Strauss, and the sister tells him that she knows who killed Joel Loveling, a guy named Wavra. He was dressed 
as a hunter. The clown, the cowboy, and the hunter were all located and interviewed that night, all three of them. But before we look closer at that, I feel it's very important we talk about how much alcohol was flowing that night and how intoxicated people were. Let's be clear, this was no sipping social, this was a binging rager of a bash. Remember Jennifer Holter, who stayed at the Broken Drum and didn't get back on the bus? She specifically told the cops that night that the reason she didn't get back on the bus was because everyone was just wasted and belligerent. In addition to the alcohol they consumed at the many bars that night, Cuckoo's Nest, Borrowed Bucks, El Rocco, Broken Drum, Stormy Sledsters, and other downtown bars, there was also a lot of alcohol on the bus. This included some 325 jello shots, of which 290 were consumed. Some quick math with 40 to 50 passengers, that's six or seven jello shots per passenger. Six or seven shots of alcohol up and above everything else. And that's only the average. It's more likely that some had more than six or seven and some had maybe none. If you're not aware, jello shots are basically just jello or sweetened flavored gelatin made with a portion of the water exchanged with vodka, tequila, or other alcohol. What you end up with is a potentially very potent, slurpy, sweet tasting cocktail that goes down like candy. And I mean like candy. And unless you make them yourself, you don't really know what you're consuming. Maybe it's vodka, maybe it's tequila, maybe it's something else. One thing is certain though, jello shots are a surefire, fast pass to intoxication. And remember how I told you that Travis Stay states he blacked out at the Broken Drum? Well, he wasn't the only one. When reading these police files, I've been struck by the number of passengers on that bus who claim to not even remember being at the Broken Drum at all. And I'm not talking about the clown and the cowboy and the hunter, just random passengers. Now, I don't know if you have ever been around extremely intoxicated individuals, but I have. And in my view, much of the behavior you will now hear about might easily be attributed to extreme intoxication. Extremely intoxicated people do things they would not ordinarily do, and no two people react exactly the same. Some forget things, some get angry, some get aggressive, others get passive and emotional, happy, sad, remorseful. This is important to keep in mind when we focus on the behavior of the cowboy, clown, and hunter as they were approached, detained, interviewed by cops, investigating nothing less than a homicide. No, I'm not suggesting alcohol is an excuse for erratic behavior, but I am suggesting alcohol is an explanation for some of it. I'll let you form your own opinion, of course, as you should. Let's start with the cowboy, Bryce Larson. At the Broken Drum, Officer Shower spoke with Jennifer Holter and got a description of Bryce Larson. Officers Shower and Johnson teamed up and drove downtown to see if they could locate Bryce Larson. At the intersection of 1st Avenue North and North 3rd Street, they caught sight of someone fitting the description. The man was walking along the sidewalk with another male wearing a sombrero. The officers parked and attempted to catch up with them. Stop, police, they called. But the men just kept walking. When they did finally catch up to the two men, Shower and Johnson ordered them to stop. When asked for a name and ID, Bryce Larson didn't really feel like cooperating. He told them that his last name was Whippler, not Larson, and he said he didn't have his ID on him. Bryce Larson says he doesn't know anything about a fight. And of course, unless he's forgotten or blacked out, this is a lie. 
We know that because Bryce had told a bouncer at the Broken Drum about a fight earlier. The other man's name was Kyle McMahon. The police officers took both men back to the squad car to talk to them in the back seat. Bryce Larson is not a happy camper at this point. He's drunk, he's angry, he wants to argue about anything really. Law enforcement noticed no injuries on the cowboy, no cuts or bruises on the knuckles, no blood. Nothing that indicates he's just been in a violent assault. But Bryce Larson gets loud and a bit physical, yelling and pointing fingers. He is then handcuffed but not put under arrest. Officer Johnson wrote the following in his report. At that time, the males were voluntarily transported to the police station for further witness statements and possible interviews. At that time, I spoke with Kyle McMahon, who appeared to be extremely intoxicated. He had trouble keeping his balance and standing up straight. Because Kyle was so intoxicated, it became clear to me that an interview at that time was probably not the best option. I gave him a written statement form and asked if he could complete it to the best of his ability. Then Officer Johnson spoke with Bryce Larson, the cowboy. He appeared extremely intoxicated and did not seem interested in making a proper statement. Officer Shower and I at that time took the handcuffs off Bryce as he had become more physically cooperative, but still remained verbally uncooperative. Bryce stated he had no knowledge of the assault and that he had no idea who could be involved. It became clear to all involved that a productive statement was not going to be received from Bryce. He stated he wanted to contact a lawyer or be allowed to go home. At that time, Sergeant Mackey made the determination to let Bryce go home and that no statement would be gathered at this time due to his lack of cooperation in the investigation. But during that first drunken interview, the cowboy did ask something that was undeniably very pertinent and important and curious. He said, Was the victim a man in a green hockey jersey? And immediately one wonders, why did Bryce Larson ask if the victim was in a green hockey jersey? Unless, of course, he was there, witnessed something, or was involved. And you can rest assured that later on in the Travis Stay trial, his defense lawyers will point this out too. Bryce Larson will have a logical explanation for this question later when he's sober, but this question at the time, was the victim wearing a green UND hockey jersey? It's just one of several details that contributed to demonstrating reasonable doubt in the Travis Stay trial. Meanwhile, John Zazeel, the clown, had also been interviewed. He'd been picked up downtown, too, by officers, and he seemed to have no idea what was going on. He was emotional when they found him, and he seemed to be crying. One officer claimed that John said, I guess things got out of hand tonight. So they bring him into the police station, and investigators really leaned into him. Remember, two bar patrons, they claimed that the clown was in an argument with a man in a green hockey jersey, and they left out the back door together. And at one point, Jennifer Holter had said that her sister claimed to know who did it, and Jennifer got the impression that her sister meant the clown. Jennifer had also told investigators she felt John was the type of person to get into a fight, very confrontational. And so the cops lean in hard on the clown. NBC Dateline's take on this moment is that the clown is uncooperative in this interview. That's a word that leaves a lot of room for interpretation, uncooperative. 
When I read the transcript, it kind of felt like he was doing his best in the situation. A Sergeant Mackey holds the reins in the interview. He leans in so hard that an obviously very drunk and confused John DeZeal becomes so frustrated that he just asks for a lawyer, his constitutional right. John says, I want an attorney. I want an attorney now. But does the sergeant back off and stop the interview immediately? Does he give this already upset clown some breathing room? No, he says, okay, but John, close your mouth and open your ears. And they continue to talk for several minutes, and it's insinuated that it's odd or suspicious that John DeZeal is getting so defensive. If he's innocent, why does he want to enact his rights, his constitutional rights, that is? Perhaps the sergeant simply believes this is their guy and thinks the clown will crack any second and confess. But this clown seems to have absolutely no idea what any of this is about. He seems totally ignorant of what's going on and very angry that he's being made to feel accused. He's already asked for a lawyer, and yet there he sits. And his only concern? His only request is to get his girlfriend's jacket back. She'd left it on the bus. That's right, law enforcement are talking about murder And the clown just wants his girlfriend's jacket back because he and his girlfriend have been arguing like they always end up doing when they're drunk, he tells them. He just wants the jacket back so he can make peace with his girlfriend. Yes, he was on the bus, but I didn't get in a fight. Where's my girlfriend's jacket? And yes, he's emotional. He's out of sorts with his girlfriend. He's drunk. There's been a murder and he's being interrogated for it. Yes, he's emotional. Law enforcement noticed no injuries on the clown, no cuts or bruises on the knuckles, nothing that indicates a struggle or a fight. What about the hunter? James Wavra, the hunter, was also interviewed that night, and he was likely one of the most sought-after persons of interest because he had paid a Dietrich bus driver $20 to drive him home and on the way confessed to getting in a fight. His buddies told him the guy had died and he better lay low. So, investigators bring James Wavre into the PD to tell his story. This is what he told them. He was walking out of the broken drum bar towards the bus with a girl named Anna on his arm. Anna was dressed as Paris Hilton. Suddenly, out of nowhere, some random guy came at him and said something smartass and took a swing at him like he wanted to kill him. The punch just grazed him, though. The guy missed. Wavre told detectives, thank God he missed Anna, it would have taken her head off. James Wavra told them he got two punches in and might have kicked the guy too. He couldn't be sure. But when asked for a description of the man's clothing, James Wavra couldn't remember. James Wavra was in instant fight-or-flight mode defending himself. He didn't have time to consider what the guy was wearing. The following is a quote from James Wavra during this interview. He was coming at me like he wanted to kill me. He falls and I kick him, I think, not sure. I was like, he just, he just come at me. It's a fight, it is. I had no idea. Like, this this is pulling you out of nowhere. A flood. This is your flood. This is Grand Forks in a flood. What do you do? The rivers are overflowing. You do what you can. I threw a right hook, and then I went and left. It was all over in ten seconds, and then James hurried to the bus. But James Wavra did remember this. The guy that tried to hit him was a young man, maybe 22 years old or something, and not a big man at all. Wavre also told them they should speak with Paris Hilton, that is, Anna. She was there, on his arm. She might know how the guy was dressed. Sergeant Mackey wrote the following in his report. I asked him to go over the evening with me. He stated that a guy tried to hit him. 
He dodged the strike and then hit the guy in the face. The guy fell to the ground. Wavra stated that he then kicked the guy in the face. He stated that this was the end of the fight, and after the fight, he saw the guy getting to his feet. Wavra provided the name of a girl that witnessed the fight. He also stated that John Bazile's dad was present. I called Anna Barrett and left a message for her. She returned the call within a few minutes. I advised her that I was investigating an incident at the Broken Drum. When asked for details about the incident, she stated that she was walking out of the bar with Wavra. As they walked, a guy wearing a yellow sweatshirt with the hood up tried to hit Wavra and also tried to grab Wavra's neck. She stated that she ran to the bus and told them that Wavra was in a fight. Several people ran to his aid, but she stayed on the bus. Barrett stated that she didn't know what happened during the fight, but that she was sure that the subject was wearing a yellow hoodie sweatshirt with the hood up. She stated that the shirt might have been a Golden Gophers sweatshirt. She described the subject as being a white male of similar size to Wavra. Just before the subject attacked Wavra, she stated, The guy was staring at us. A yellow hooded sweatshirt. Not a green hockey jersey. And suddenly some clarity seeped through the chaotic and murky mist of that hectic night. Through the jello and booze, flashing lights and sirens, pieces started falling into place. There had been two separate fights that night. And with that knowledge, things instantly started to make more sense. The fight that everyone had been talking about and thinking about and worrying about was between Travis Stay and James Wavra. This confusion affected everything and everyone. The hunter, well, he thought he might have accidentally killed someone, and he told a bus driver as much. The cowboy, the drunken, confrontational cowboy in handcuffs, he could hardly stand up straight, and he certainly couldn't accept that Wavra's 10-second skirmish killed anyone. And the clown, the clown who just wanted his girlfriend's jacket back, he got caught in the crossfires of everything. Misunderstandings, a quickly moving investigation, and even inaccurate witness statements. Now, if you've been paying close attention, you will likely have some unanswered, nagging questions. Questions like, what inaccurate witness statements? Or, what was that about someone's dad being present at the Wavra fight? And of course, why did the cowboy ask about a green hockey jersey? Well, some of these answers will depend on who and what you believe. And we'll get into all that next time. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, and produced by me, James Walner. I also do the sound editing. Our podcast network manager is Chris Kurzman. Madison Hunter, our social media specialist, and Jeremy Fugelberg, our editorial advisor. Don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Finally, some music this season was generously granted again by Wowza in Kalamazoo and Hand Turner. Check them out at wowzainkalamazoo.bandcamp.com and handturner.bandcamp.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.